Welcome to Scuba Shack Radio, episode 52, recorded Sunday, February 14th, 2021. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Happy Valentine's Day, everyone, and I hope you're doing well. And again, thanks for listening to Scuba Shack Radio. I'm your host, Jefferson Serpino. Well, we are halfway through February 2021, and what a wintry month it has been here in Connecticut. We've had three or four different snow events and some very cold and windy weather. We may actually be able to conduct an ice diver class this year. A lot of times we try to schedule this training only to be stymied with the lack of ice. Perhaps this year will be different. On another encouraging front, we have worked out all the details for our Memorial Day trip to Nassau, where we'll spend a few days of diving with Stuart Cove. We are keeping our fingers crossed that there won't be any setbacks with the pandemic, and we'll get back to the Bahamas after missing last year. Donna and I are hoping to make the trip with the Scuba Shack crew this year as well. On today's show, I want to talk a little bit about underwater navigation, an important skill. Then we'll look at a really cool organization, Turtles Fly 2. And finally, we'll have another installment of Sea Hunt, It's Still Alive, where we'll go to a flooded mine. So let's get started. Last weekend, I was teaching a private open water class to a woman who wanted to get her confined water training done before heading out to the South Pacific to work and to complete her open water dives. That's pretty nice, don't you think? Well, as we were finishing up our classroom work, we reviewed the logistics for our pool session the next day. I pulled up the map on my computer with the street view to show her where to enter the building and the location of the parking. And as we were closing out, she said, just give her the address and she'll let the GPS in her phone get her to the pool. Pretty simple, and she arrived on time the next day at the pool ready for our session. Now, during our pool sessions, we have our students wear a computer on their wrist. I like to let them get used to the feel and also looking at the computer while underwater. And as I was explaining that we like to wear the computer on our right wrist with our compass on the left wrist, she asked if there was an underwater GPS available instead of a compass. That's a reasonable question. Right now, I would say, not really. I know that Garmin makes a dive computer, the Descent Mark I, that has a surface GPS to mark your entry and exit points, but the disclaimer on their website states, GPS tracking and satellite communication does not work underwater. Technology, however, continues to be amazing. I did come across a company, Navimate, out in Northridge, California, 
that is creating a solution of sorts. It involves a GPS gateway, which is a floating radio antenna with a suspended array below, and that communicates with a wrist-mounted unit. It uses an acoustic signal that determines the bearing and range from the GPS gateway, and then plots your position on the dive site. It's an interesting piece of technology and still evolving. The website for Navimate says that it will be available this year. The cost of the wrist unit will be $1,500, while the GPS gateway will also come in at $1,500. There was some reference that they would be making the GPS gateway available to boat operators. So it would appear that we are at the cusp of some new and exciting ways to navigate during our diving. But as we know, the proliferation, adoption, and success could take a while. The wrist mount unit is only good if you have the GPS gateway available. It could take a while until there are enough of these units out there to make, to make it worthwhile purchasing a $1,500 unit. You could end up with a gadget on your arm that isn't going to give you what you want. So that's where we come to the tried and true underwater navigator. We all start our underwater navigation training during our first open water diver course when we are introduced to the compass and how to use it for some simple navigation on the surface and then underwater. But if most people are like me, I wasn't really ready to navigate effectively on a dive. I needed more experience and training. We get this during our advanced open water training when we do more navigation training and conduct a navigation dive to extend our knowledge. We learn about kick cycles, how to measure distance, and extend our skills with a compass. For most people, this is pretty much the extent of their navigation training. So you'll have to make sure that you practice. Use your compass during a dive to set a course and see if you can return to the boat. Use time to judge your distance and kick cycles. Learn to trust your compass, and you'll find your underwater navigation skills improved. You can also continue your navigation training and education with the Underwater Navigation Specialty course. For the PADI specialty, you go into more detail about measuring distance, how to use natural navigation techniques, and more use of the compass, including underwater patterns. After completing your knowledge development, which can be done using the PADI electronic learning platform, You'll conduct three open water dives that build your skills and proficiency in underwater navigation. Having that confidence and competence in using your compass and finding your way underwater reduces your stress and anxiety and makes your diving more relaxed and fun. Right now, we really aren't able to avail ourselves of underwater GPS. It sounds like there might be solutions in the future, and as we have come to appreciate technology advances we'll be standing by. For now, however, you can't go wrong in developing your skills in the tried and true underwater navigation techniques and equipment. Right before the massive COVID-19 lockdown last year, we attended the Boston Sea Rover's 66th Annual Clinic, which I think was the last in-person scuba-related conference. 
And while we had some inkling that something big was happening, little did we fully grasp the extent of the pandemic. At Sea Rovers, I spent a little bit of time at the National Marine Life Sanctuary booth. And I also did a segment on them in episode 30 from April of 2020, if you want to learn more. A couple of weeks ago, I thought I'd check their website to see if there were any new updates that I could pass along in my weekly blog. Well, it turns out that this past year was a record breaker for sea turtle strandings. And that was reported by the Massachusetts Audubon Wellfleet Bay Wildlife Sanctuary. And it came in at 1,174. By the way, the National Marine Life Sanctuary is located in Buzzards Bay, Massachusetts. And as I was reading their update, I was introduced to an organization that I hadn't heard of before called Turtles Fly 2. It sounded interesting, so I did a little homework, and I thought I'd introduce you to this fascinating organization called Turtles Fly 2. Let's start with their mission, and that is to coordinate and facilitate the use of general aviation to transport endangered species, critical response teams, and to educate the community on conservation of marine life. But how did it all start? Well, back in 2014, at the start of the cold stun season here in the Northeast, that's when water temperatures drop and the turtles' body temperatures fall below acceptable limits in the greater Atlantic. This particular year was bad, and early in the season, there was no capacity in the area for caring for these turtles. Something needed to be done to get these turtles to facilities that could care for them. That's when Kate Sampson, the coordinator of NOAA's Sea Turtle Strandings, stepped in. She turned to a gentleman, Leslie Weinstein, who owned a company called TrueLock, which was an aviation fastener company. Now, Leslie had extensive connections across the aviation community. He was also on the University of Florida's Archie Carr Center for Sea Turtle Research Development Board. With his interest in sea turtle conservation, coupled with his network in the aviation community, he spread the word out that he needed pilots and planes to volunteer to get these stranded sea turtles to rehabilitation centers across the United States, and fast. That effort was a success and they were able to get hundreds of cold-stunned sea turtles to rehabilitation centers so they could be released back into the wild. Turtles Fly 2 was born. The organization continued to evolve and grow, and under Leslie's direction, Turtles Fly 2 became a 501c3 charitable organization, and that provides donors tax deduction. Today, the executive director is Bonnie Barnes, who started working with Turtles Fly 2 in 2017. She previously was the development manager for Reef Environmental Educational Foundation. So how are things going? Pretty well, according to Leslie. In his newsletter, he indicates that 2020 represented their largest number of missions flown coast to coast. They transported 536 cold-stunned sea turtles. Now, they don't just fly turtles. They transport other marine mammals. One of the stories on their website was about a Guadalupe fur seal stranded in Oregon, and that fur seal needed transport to Petaluma, California. The fur seal was named Soleado, or Sunny. 
and while the transport mission was successful, Soliato succumbed and was unable to be recovered and died. In July of 2020, a humpback whale was discovered in New York's harbor, entangled in steel cable and fishing gear. Turtles Fly 2 arranged transport for the disentanglement team and their gear and, and headed it down to the site where they participated in a successful rescue mission. I also went out to their Facebook page, and it looks like you can really stay abreast of all the things that they are doing out there. It appears to be more timely and updated than their website. But that doesn't mean there's still not a lot of information on their website. If you're a pilot with a plane, you can sign up. If you want to go on in-depth topics like sea turtle conservation, you can view previously recorded lectures. And like most of these organizations, there's an easy way to make a donation. I did poke around to see if they published any type of annual report, but wasn't able to find one. Their main office is in Boise, Idaho, and they have an East Coast office in Miami, Florida. I'm always amazed to come across these unique and important conservation organizations. With organizations like Turtles Fly 2, we divers and ocean advocates can continue to enjoy our encounters with endangered sea turtles. Time for another installment of Sea Hunt. It's still alive here on Scuba Shack Radio. And this time we're going back to Season 1, Episode 2, titled Flooded Mine. Flooded Mine that premiered on January 11, 1958. The show opens up with Mike scuba diving, and there's a woman who is free diving with him. They are searching for a guitar fish for marine land of the Pacific, and that's when they encounter a sea lion who Mike calls a natural clown. He then says that he will be faced with a very different situation 1,500 miles inland, where he's been called to investigate a mine explosion that has flooded the tunnels. In the next scene, Mike is at the mine, and he's talking to the head of the mine, Mr. Graham. Mr. Graham explains that the explosion killed 30 miners, and he needs Mike to determine the extent of the flooding. Mike tells Mr. Graham that he can go a thousand yards into the tunnel with his cylinder. Graham asks him what it's going to cost. Mike says, we'll talk about that later. Now, Mr. Graham calls in Bill Henderson, who's going to help Mike. Bill tells Graham that he's sorry about his boy, who was killed in the explosion. The scene shifts to Mike being lowered into the mine in his full scuba gear with a miner's helmet on. He says he's been in all seven seas and on six continents, but has never been in a mine before and never wants to be in one again. As Bill and Mike are making their way through the mine, Bill tells Mike not to touch anything. It's a tight squeeze. And then Mike accidentally kicks a beam that causes a bit of a cave-in. Well, they finally make it to the water. Mike, Mike looks at his watch and it says 320 and he tells Bill that he has 40 minutes of air. Bill asks Mike, what can he do if he doesn't make it back in time? 
to which Mike replies, nothing. Bill tells Mike he's got a dangerous job. Now, under the murky water, Mike is feeling his way along, slowly, carefully, when he hears some noises. He doesn't know exactly what what they are, but he sees a light at the surface, and when he surfaces up, he discovers two miners trapped in an air pocket, barely breathing. Mike shoves the regulator in their mouth and smacks them and starts yelling at them to breathe. Now the dilemma, how to get them out. There's no time to go back for another lung. He can only take one out, but who? They draw rocks. Smallest rock stays. The guy Mike is taking out can't swim. Uh Uh-oh. And he needs weight, so they load his pants with rocks. Mike shows him how to buddy breathe, gives him his masks, and off they go. But not for long. The miner panics, takes Mike's knife, and starts to fight with him. Mike drops his light and gets the panic diver back to the air pocket. Mike goes back down to get his light, and then he comes up and tells the second miner to get some rocks. He's taken him out. This time, Mike keeps his mask, and things go smoothly. We then see Bill looking at his watch. It's 4 p.m. Where's Mike? Suddenly, Bill sees the light, and Mike comes up with the miner. It's Ben Workman. Mike needs to go back, but he doesn't have enough air, and there's not enough time to go out of the mine for another tank. What can they do? Just then, Mike spots a welding torch. Where there's a torch, there's oxygen. The O2 tank has the same valve as his regulator. What luck! But Mike needs some tools to complete the rig. Now he needs to go back down underwater to retrieve a toolbox. He does, and hooks up his regulator and carries the O2 tank with him as he heads back, breathing welding oxygen. Mike reaches the air pocket and finds the second miner, limp but not dead. He gives him the regulator, and the miner starts to revive. He tells Mike he's sorry, that he was scared. Mike says, that's okay, you just didn't have enough oxygen. This time, Mike says that things went a lot better, and they made it out. We never did get the name of that panicked miner, nor did we ever find out what Mike charged Mr. Graham. For those of us of a certain age or watch a lot of old-time television, you might recognize Bill Henderson. That's Hank Patterson, who played Fred Ziffel, Arnold the Pig's dad on Green Acres. The episode sort of ended abruptly when, when it switches to Lloyd Bridges on his boat telling us that three-fifths of the planet is covered by sea and how little we know. So join us as we go below with Sea Hunt. As we have seen in many Sea Hunt adventures, you never know where Mike Nelson will be going diving next. Stay tuned for future installments of Sea Hunt. It's still alive here on Scuba Shack Radio. Buddy breathing, no mass swimming through a flooded mine carrying an oxygen tank. Wow. Only Mike Nelson could do that. So this wraps up today's Valentine's Day show here on Scuba Shack Radio. Hope you enjoyed it. And once again, thank you for listening and your continued support. 
Goodbye, everyone. Scuba Shack Radio is a bi-weekly podcast in support of our mission to empower individuals with knowledge, ability, and experience to venture underwater in pursuit of their aspirations and to advocate for ocean health and sustainability. Talk to you next time.